Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Today, my guest is Amy Taylor, and her debut novel is called Search History. Welcome, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. I feel that you are Australia's answer to Sally Rooney. Um, she's, you are fierce, clever, intelligent, and totally in control of the narrative. Uh, Search History, I loved Search History. I really loved this book. It's a sharply funny debut novel about identity, obsession, and the desire in the internet age. Um, Diana Reed's endorsement says this, I quote, perfectly captures the tragedy and comedy that is living and loving online with wit, humour and insight. What was your inspiration for this novel, Amy? With Search History, the plot came first um, and the way that the plot began to form was from my own experiences with um, being able to visit the social media accounts of someone who's passed away, which uh, is a very strange and modern experience, but it's also universal now from how long social media has existed. Um, we've all sort of got somebody that we can still visit online, but we can't visit in real life. Uh, and there's also this uh, grim statistic um, from the Oxford Institute of Internet Research uh, that if Facebook does nothing about uh, the accounts it has of deceased people, in roughly 50 years, they will outnumber the accounts of living people. Wow. So, <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? Mm. And so you, this was a, the spark, I guess, that really, you know, that took hold and then you created Anna, the character Anna, the protagonist. Um, and she flees to Melbourne in the wake of a breakup and then um, Anna, she finds this sort of unfulfilling job in an, o a, in an overly enthusiastic tech startup, which was quite funny, and I loved your description of that. And then she meets Evan, who is charming, kind, and financially responsible. And Anna feels like she's finally awoken from a long dating nightmare. Um, so... Then, um, then we sort of delve into some of her online search and her background searching through sort of Evan's history. And then we get into really, really murky territory there. Um, so I really enjoyed your character descriptions. Would you mind uh, reading a little bit from page 17 about the, um, the startup experience she has with her work? Yeah, so this chapter is Anna at work. I looked across the ping pong table at Paul. The images on the screen were reflected in his glasses. It was obvious from the small, unconscious nodding movements he was making that he was completely invested in the video. Paul was a silver fox, the type of man whose well-placed wrinkles made him more attractive. He was quintessentially corporate. His personality could be described as professional. He would have exited the womb with a full set of veneers and a meeting to get to. I returned my eyes to the screen. The scenes transitioned faster. 
a woman collapsed in tears of joy after running through the tape at a finish line a ballerina grimaced as she rubbed her bruised and bleeding feet steve jobs presented the iphone to a cheering audience i assumed paul hoped these videos would stoke the flames of ambition in the pits of our stomachs and send us back to our desks with a renewed motivation as if the secret to increasing employee productivity could be unlocked by watching old videos of Michael Jordan dunking. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed being in the head of Anna and her sort of wry take on everything. Do you miss that character now that you finish with the novel? Are you still sort of thinking in Anna? Yeah. When you write from first-person perspective, you do have to get really close with a character um, and there was a moment when I handed my manuscript over for the last time that I realised that I'd been having sort of conversations in my own head with this character for years. And at that point, I no longer needed to converse with her at the same level. Um, and it was quite sad. And I had a discussion with my partner who has been um, very supportive through the whole journey and has read many drafts of the book. And even he said himself, you know, it's kind of sad to say goodbye to Anna. Um, but the only cure is to start another book. Absolutely. And form new friendships with new characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, so just going back to the, all the drafts that you talked about, what was your process for this? Was it a long um, process from first draft to final draft? Yeah, it took, um, it's, I started writing it in 2017, so it took a while. And I think looking back, it took longer than it probably needed to because I was trying to learn how to write a novel at the same time as I was writing a novel, um, which meant a lot of forward movement and then going back and excavating stuff and getting rid of it and changing it along the way and learning um, how to structure as I'm structuring. So lots of mistakes were made, yeah. Well, I have to say your structure was flawless and... Right, you, you really kept that dramatic tension right up till the end, and I love the ending. Of course, we're not going to talk about mm -hmm. that. Um, so when you handed it over to the publisher that very first time, was there a, a big sort of back and forth between that moment and the final, um, the final publication? Uh, yeah, there was a process of um, editing. I was really fortunate to have uh, editors working on it in Australia and in America at the same time. Wow. So um, I sort of had, f I think, four different voices uh, talking about what they thought was working and what wasn't. And I'm a very collaborative person. I like to talk to others about how they're receiving the work. I'm not super insular in the sense that I think I'm right all the time. I don't. So um, I loved that process of hearing other people's thoughts and um, often they would be the same thought coming from four different people. And so you know you're onto something when everyone's receiving it the same way. Yeah. So why were there four people? What Was it just that there was an international market and, and it has it been sold internationally? Is that why? Yeah, so the U.S. rights have sold, so it's going to be released um, in the U.S. in November. Um, okay. And they, I think because of the timeline, it just happened that they were all uh, doing the edit at the same time. So I had um, my publisher and then sort of editorial assistants as well mm -hmm. in some cases. Uh, but I received a structural feedback letter with all four opinions sort of in the same document to make it easier for me. So... And I think there was a lot of work behind the scenes that perhaps I didn't see where um, if there was anything 
that came up more than once or was contradictory, they they may have worked through it themselves. I'm not sure, but okay. I got the letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And are you expecting, have you heard about any film rights for this project or is it something you're considering? Uh, I think there's somebody uh, through Curtis Brown who's handling that in the US. Exciting. I don't know a lot about that, to be honest. I kind of, in some cases, I think in this process, it's best to know little about these things because right. I have a tendency to want to control and obsess over it. So, you know, if I knew that, say, for example, there was a conversation happening about Italian translation rights, that I might go a bit crazy in the background, you know, trying to exercise control in whatever way I think <laughs> I can. Um, so best not to know, I think. But yeah, I, I believe that they're available and, and people are working on them. That's exciting. Congratulations. I mean, it's such a compelling and interesting story. It would make a great film. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about your writing background. So this is your first book. And how did you learn to write? Did you go to, to, to study somewhere or what did you do? I used to write stories a lot as a child. Um, and then through school, I was not the best with grammar. Uh, and I think because through schooling, English is sort of seen as writing, reading. Um, and if you're not very good at grammar, your marks in English in general are not going to be very good. Um, so for a long time, I just thought I wasn't very good at English and therefore not very good at writing. Uh, and it took a while as an adult to overcome that. And I studied marketing and public relations. So I ended up working with words a lot in writing copy uh, for websites and email newsletters and things like that. Um, so words just continued to be around me. Um, and then no creative writing training, but uh, just, yeah, a passion sort of that came over me. It would have been 2016. I was just very dissatisfied in my job and I wanted something to escape into. And I knew I'd always enjoyed writing stories when I was younger and I'd lost that somewhere along the way and I wanted to revisit it and see if it still held the sort of allure that it had for me when I was a child and it did. Yeah it, it really I mean it's it's compelling work it's great. Um, so are you for your next piece of writing are you thinking about staying in first person or are you broadening are you diversifying in third or what what do you have you got any thoughts on that so far? Yeah I'm, I made a pledge to myself that I was going to push myself beyond what I'd done in each book I didn't I didn't want to um, do the same thing again I wanted to try and do something that was uncomfortable that would feel like an extension uh, so my second book that I'm working on at the moment uh, is third person split perspective so I'm having a lot of fun with that. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's that I can't wait till <laughs> that comes out. <laughs> How far along are you with that? Um <clears throat> I'm in the optimistic first draft stage where I'm having a lot of fun and it seems like it's going well. Uh, I hope it continues that way. Um I'm just enjoying it so much at the moment. <sighs> that's and good. I I think that's a good sort of compass within myself that if I'm enjoying writing it and I enjoy it when I read it then others will too so I think that's a good rule of thumb in general yeah I think you know if you're enjoying the process then you know there's you can feel that investment from a reader's point of view mm. were there moments when you were writing this book that were difficult yeah there are scenes in the book that were hard to write uh, or uncomfortable to write. Um, one of them actually ended up being published as a short story 
before the book came out and it was the first short story that I'd ever had published. So that was a sort of strange experience. It's essentially a sex scene. So um, the first thing you ever publish uh, in print, all of your family reads it. (laughs) Uh, Extended family read it. Everyone gathers around to support you. And so I had the sort of strange experience of that happening for me so my partner's nana you know everyone reading amy's (laughs) short story so yeah Um, so where was it published uh story in an anthology that was published by um ultimo oh okay yeah so is it a competition or it was yeah it was a um you had to write to the theme identity and i converted the first chapter of search history into second person perspective to put the identity back on the reader essentially in a way oh clever Um, so that yeah that that's what they published. Okay. Really cool. And so then after that, did you go back to Ultimo and say, actually, I've got a novel or what? Because you published through Alan and Unwin. So, yeah. so did you, how did you, did you just get that together and then post it to Alan and Unwin first or was there some jostling? Uh, I had, um, I had to come up with a bio to go next to the short story on this, on a separate page in the middle, quite, um, purposefully in the middle. (laughs) Um, and I decided that I wanted to have a sentence in that bio that read, this isn't adapted from a novel she is currently working on. And my hope was that maybe that would attract attention from agents or publishers and, um, yeah, off the back of that, I was contacted by my now agent, Benjamin Paz at Curtis Brown, and he asked to see the novel. So then things went from there. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, it's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, the novel is called Search History, published by Alan and Unwin, and the author is Amy Taylor. Thank you for being my guest today, Amy. Thank you. And Lisa, imagine if ChatGPT got hold of your Facebook account, you could have a virtual person existing in the ether. Oh, my God. It's a bit of a worry. But anyway, we've got to keep going. Uh, Sorry to (laughs) cut you off there. This is my pre-record with Catherine Sintafal. In her latest novel, Call Me Marlowe, Catherine de Sintafal explores the trauma and uncertainty individuals experience in their lives wherever they live. So, Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, the first half of this novel is set in Brunswick, as are a lot of your novels. A bit less than the third, the first half. Well, the, the first half. But you're touching on characters and situations you've raised before, which is intriguing. Well, yes, because there was a preceding novel called The Sea and Us, and that novel was finished, and then the character Harold just stayed with me. He wouldn't go away. I tried to write something else and he was just always there when I was brushing my teeth or taking the bus. I couldn't get rid of him. Not that I wanted to because I'm attached to him. And then finally a new book came, you know, like as if you took sand away and a a, a town appears. And the town that appeared was Prague. But, um, yeah, I I find my publisher, Barry Scott of Transit Lounge, um, he said, you know, when I showed him the manuscript, he said, yeah, but can you make it a standalone novel, which I did. But some of the concerns still apply. So it can be read in completely alone. Oh, it can be read a, completely yeah, alone. Yeah. But we've got Mary Lou and yeah. Harold. So yeah. their relationship is developed, so yes, to speak. Yes, flowered in a way, yeah. But they've got an intriguing past. Harold's previously had run away to South Korea. Mm. Mary Lou had been a prostitute. Mm. What happens to their relationship in Brunswick? 
well, I think the deepest things happen in a, in a strange, unexpected way. You know, sometimes you're having your coffee and you have an epiphany, or, you, it, 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 or sometimes the extraordinary is ordinary. And love is an extraordinary thing, and it, it took them a long while. It's like a distant bell, you know, you, you don't always hear it. And, and yes, it's so close to you, but you don't always hear it right. You want it, but you can't hear it right. And I think in this book, they hear it right. They hear it right, but Harold runs away. Yes, because he makes a mistake. So he makes a big mistake. Well, basically, there are certain truths, certain knowledge that they've kept from each other. Yes, well, especially Harold. Which is, or could be interpreted as a betrayal. Well, it was, yeah, it can be. You were so subtle, David. Thank you for that reading. Yeah, Mary Lou, yeah, I, I don't want to, yeah, it's an important Don't want to part. give it away too much, but... Yes. Basically, Harold was keeping certain knowledge to protect Mary Lou in a way. But that protection, that the the truth of what his intentions were, undermines him. Yes, and he he tries to protect. And men often do that. They try to protect women, but it's an exchange of strength and vulnerabilities. A couple, you know, sometimes you're strong in one area and weak in another, and yeah, and... Now, the second half of the novel is set yes. in Prague because yes. Harold has run away to Prague, even though he has consummated his relationship mm. with Mary Lou. He escapes, but this then... He doesn't escape, he runs away. Runs away. It's different. Um, this echoes then many of the characters and how they deal with problems. It seems to be something that's quite um, prevalent. Well, there is a theme in Czech in the Czech psyche, because I've been always obsessed with Czechoslovakia since I was a child, and I don't know why. When I was a little girl at school, there was a Czech, it was during the 60s, when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia, and there was a little girl who was there, uh, who was a refugee, and she she looked, I I never saw her again, I just saw her, and she was much older than me, and, and well, I was taken back into the class where I was and I hated school so I didn't move an eye but um, there's a theme in Czechoslovakian his- in Czech history is that it's the males go walk about and I think it's because their identity there was a theft of identity so many times as you were saying when we met a few minutes ago the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire then well the democracy was the wonderful well, the shining heart of Europe. They had the only democracy in Europe at the time, which was extraordinary, and, and that's how they got murdered by the abandoned at the Munich betrayal. You know, they, they call it the Munich betrayal instead of the Munich agreements. Um, so, and then the Austro-Hungarian, uh, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire first, then the democracy, then the Soviet, then the Hitler, then the Soviet. So they they've been in a way a country raped, a country abandoned a country, torn apart. So the men feel, I think, um, disempowered, so they run away. In Prague, Harold finds a similar pattern to the conduct he himself has exhibited. Vaclav looks thoughtful. Yes, I knew your grandmother, Harold. He glances at the floor as if the ground were rumbling. I did not tell you. You see, Harold, truth is a composite. Sometimes we cannot carry it all at the same time. Whole truth, like Bible, too heavy. 
Marie and I both knew when we see you, we see her. The eyes, the eyes especially. The mouth, some expression, the darting Harry. Harry, the way you walk, Harold. So this notion of a truth that's carried over uh, but not told. Mm -hmm. And so this, that starts the domestic level. But as you say then, this truth is linked to an historical level. So you've taken what's happened on a personal domestic front to that historical truth and the machinations that occurred there, which you've already mentioned, the Nazis, the communists. You raise one um, political character in particular, Jan Mazarik. Mazarik. Jan Mazarik. Yeah. So I learned to, to say it right. <laughs> Getting our tongues around things. So his role in Czech history and politics, what was that? Um, well, he, he was the son of Thomas Masaryk, who, who, was the only, who was the first democratic president of Czechoslovakia. He was his own son. And then he became Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he was in London during the war, and the English loved him. And he, ha he, 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 he did a radio program with the BBC, so that would... Uh, you should read that book, David, you'd love it. It's called Speaking to My Country, and it's the... T the, the how do you say it? They put in the book all his... his pro all his... every time he, he, he spoke on the radio. And it's, it's, it's so beautiful. But the truth here can be perverted, because people say, well, he fell out of a window. No, he, he committed suicide. That was the official version. Well, the, the official line. Which yeah. is not true. He was murdered by the Soviets. Yeah. And, mm. and so this is what political regimes do. Yes. Is they uh, sort of construct a truth, yes. so to speak, that is convenient. Mm. And we lose sight of um, the reality, the actual truth. Mm. And so you, you've actually paralleled what Harold is doing, the truth in a, yes. uh, on the you really, personal, domestic You really domestic read it and, and heard what I want to say. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like private tyrannies lead to public tyrannies. That's the theme of the book. Mm. But again, then escalating it into that global history, as you've already said, Pete chuckles. So I understand right. The Austro-Hungarian Empire tried to reproduce the Holy Roman Empire. Then democracy came out of World War One. Then Hitler lusted after the democracy. Then the Russians copied Hitler, all this because we can't detect a narcissist soon enough. Yes. How prescient is that line today? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Even today? Yes, well, I felt it in, I felt it very strongly, that this book, this theme, and I was obsessed by it, and that's how the book kind of grew organically out of that feeling. But it seems as if the personal conduct that makes us run away uh, or betray others, ha which we look at on a domestic level, mm. has echoes in terms of people they don't seem to be able to help themselves to, to act as tyrants. Well, that because you're letting... You're let, I think it's like as if you were letting a space into reality, a vacuum, and then they can go in. Well, that's what happened with Chamberlain, Daladier and Roosevelt during the Munich Accords. They said to Hitler, we're OK, keep Czechoslovakia, it's OK. And he, he just went into Europe like in butter, and he invaded Poland, and he was given leeway to become... What he was, but he, he, he could have stayed a potential tyrant, but this was a, the vacuum he needed mm. to get in. 
Also then, the, the notion of identity. Vaclav Patsani, Pradana Nevasta, he glances at me, the bartered bride. The opera composed by Vedrich Smetna, staged the first time in 1870 when we were still the Austro- Austro-Hungarian Empire, had a hundred performances. Why was it so successful? Because the Czechs knew already that they were the bartered bride, their identity unfocused, their sympathies a layered Apfelstrudel. And then they started wanting something else. <laughs> this notion of nations looking for their identity, mm. just as the individual yes, is yeah. looking like for his or her who's identity. Like a woman or a man who's, who's, who's squished by his partner or anyone who's, who loses their, uh, whose soul is fragmented by, by the will of the other. And so Harold, getting back to the, the sort of... Uh, central character is looking for his identity because his family came from Czechoslovakia. His mother, whom he'd sort of uh, become distant from, Mm. he'd raised by his grandmother. But it it therefore raises that question of how do we find our identity? How do we, as an individual, how do we as a nation? David, have you ever read fairy tales? Have you ever read fairy tales? Uh, Ordinary fairy tales? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, the, the, the... the main character, who is also a bit of a dumbbell, and he, he wanders around and he doesn't know, he goes through a forest, and that's life. And he follows all sorts of paths, and he meets witches and, and, and monsters, and he, 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 he gets these tasks done. And I think that's how you, you follow unknown paths, and then you find your way, and you find yourself in the end, which is your soul, and that's the princess that the, the guy meets in the fairy tale. But I think that's what we have to... I think every book, in a way, is a fairy tale, but it, some finish badly, some finish well, some finish in between. It doesn't matter, but it, it's, a, it's an eternal template. An eternal template and a way of trying to explore the truth, even though that remains uh, intangible in yes. some ways. Yeah. The, well, it's the a fish, truth. isn't it, the truth? It's a silvery fish f- uh, swimming before you, and it, 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 you, you get patches of it, but you can't hold the truth. You'd be a tyrant yourself if you hold the tr- held the truth like a thing. So you do, in fact, uh, bring these strands together, Mary Lou Harold. There is also then a child that uh, Harold has met, Peter, and he tries to look after him. But again, in some ways, Peter, when he discovered his mother, tried to avoid facing the truth. Um, He was only a child. He was only a child. But we do it as children, we do it as adults as well. So there is a form of reconciliation at the end, but if the reader wants to find out what that reconciliation is, they're going to have to read the book themselves. As I say, it sort of picks up on what Catherine has written in the past, but extends that whole notion of the way we lead our lives and how what we go through personally is in some ways what nations go through in terms of facing the truth, denying the truth, fabricating reality, and in sometimes running away from it. So the book is called Call Me Marlowe, the Author is Catherine de Saint-Fal, and it is a transit lounge release. So, Catherine, thank you once again for talking with me today. Thank you, David.